0: I do greet you in the name of the Lord and welcome you on this Lord's Day as we continue our series, First Things, a study through Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14 and 15 with an emphasis on verse 15. This is God's word. The Lord said, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall shall bruise his heel. This is God's word. Please be seated. Satan has tempted the woman to disobey God, and she took the bait. The woman has led her husband astray, and now the two of them are standing before, as it were, the judgment seat of God. The Lord God first confronted and judged the serpent who is Satan in disguise. He is brought low. Satan is abased. Of all the creatures of God's creation, Satan is the lowest and he is cursed more than all of God's cursed creation. He took on the embodiment of a serpent. And now the serpent will represent what Satan Is among all of God's creation. He is low. He will crawl like a snake. He tempted the man and the woman to eat, and now he will eat dust all the days of his life. He will be reviled, and he will ultimately and finally be destroyed. As Adam and the woman. Now, listen to the curse of destruction upon Satan. They await what they believe will also be likewise God's judgment upon them. And as they wait, they hear the Lord God make a promise. It is a surprising promise, a shocking promise. It's a promise that no one, no one but God could have foreknown. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What is this? What is this? As Adam and the woman stand bracing themselves for destruction. For violating God's law. For breaking the covenant of works, God graciously, mercifully, and lovingly gives a promise of good news. The Lord God promises that from that moment forward, there would be two opposing families. Children of the devil and children of the seed. And the Lord God promises that a covenant will be established and inaugurated. In the coming and suffering of a divine conqueror, he is the skull crushing, skull destroying seed of the woman. She will not be destroyed. She will not be destroyed in the way that Satan will be destroyed. Rather, she will be used. She will be used as an agent through which the conqueror will come. Brothers and sisters, there is hope. There is grace promised. There is a new and better covenant that will be established in Adam and the woman. Now, for the first time, hear the gospel. And now, this morning, we will consider what our, one of our Baptist forefathers called the first dawning of the blessed light of God's grace upon poor sinners. It is the Proto-Evangelion. It is the first good news, the first announcement, the first declaration of the gospel. This is known as the covenant of grace. If you're taking notes this morning, our title for this morning's sermon is The Covenant of Grace. And we will consider the covenant of grace with four points this morning. Number one, very simply, what is a covenant? Number one, what is a covenant? Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let us begin with a basic understanding, a basic definition. And listen to how I say this of a divine covenant, not just covenant, but a divine covenant. And you may remember some of these definitions. And we are saying divine Because, if you're taking notes, because God is the initiator of the covenant. And God is therefore divine. God is not therefore divine. God is divine. Therefore, it is a divine covenant. Right? A divine covenant is a relational arrangement. Relational. For the purpose of relationship. Initiated by God. By by God sovereignly dispensing. His kindness, goodness, and wisdom toward man. I'll read that again. A divine covenant is a relational arrangement. Initiated by who? By man? By God. Who sovereignly dispenses, gives his kindness, goodness, and wisdom toward man. To man. A covenant starts with God. God is the one who engages. God is the one who initiates And it is God who directs this covenant toward man for God's glory. You got that? God initiates the covenant. He engages the covenant to man for God's glory. A divine covenant is not an agreement or pact between God and man. It's not a a covenant in which... God and man sit down at a table together and come to an agreement. They don't come to terms of agreements. God imposes covenants on man and is in position. It's not something that we should revile, but it is rather something that we should thank God for. You got that? So we don't sit down together and come to an agreement. Rather, God imposes his covenant upon us. And he does so for the good of man, not for the detriment of man, but for the good of man. And for God's glory. Divine covenants are a means through which God reveals himself. Reveals his kindness. Reveals his love. Reveals his goodness to man, his creation. And what is the purpose of of the covenant? They are simply God's way of interacting or relating to man. They are purposed for communion. The purpose of them is communion. Fellowship with who? With man. God initiates directs covenants toward man for the purpose of fellowshipping with man. Is it because God is alone or because God is lonely and God is in need of friends? No, God is in need of no one. We must not assume that God's interacting with man or relating to man is for the purpose of God or for the benefit of God. Got that? God does not relate to us. God does not fellowship with us or communicate with us for his benefit. If it's not for, for God's benefit, then, then for whose benefit is it? Your benefit. God does not need anyone or anything or anything from anyone. God is complete and whole all within himself. He is all that he is, all that once. He is neither the receiver nor benefactor of anyone or anything. So then if God is not benefacting or benefiting from communion and fellowship who is then benefiting you are benefiting God's apex of his creation is benefiting from divine covenants or divine relationships that God establishes we benefit from those and God gets the glory Amen and God receives the glory Number 2 this will be an important one for most of you Where is this covenant the title of our sermon is Covenant of Grace. Where is this covenant? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Pause. Where is the word covenant in this passage? Are you looking at it? You see it anywhere? Anywhere in that verse 15 do you see the word covenant mentioned? How about the word grace? Is the word grace mentioned anywhere in this passage? How about this? The word gospel or good news. See it anywhere in this passage? No. If these words are not present, then how could we possibly call this a so-called covenant, let alone a covenant of grace? Uh, This proto evangelion, where's that word? If the word's not present, then we must reject it. Yes or no. This is an issue. It's an issue that we have addressed in the past and in conversations with some. It's still an issue as we approach the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, we must not be afraid. And we must not resist theological constructs or systematic theology simply because we don't see a word present. You got that? We should not be afraid or resist words that describe a theological truth simply because we don't find a specific word present in the text. These theological uh, truths have been constructed or these theological words, covenant, grace, covenant of grace, Proto Evangelion, first gospel. They have been constructed or drawn from where? The minds of men. Or God's holy scripture. God's holy scripture. We are drawing from what God has said in his word. And coming to conclusions based upon what God has said in his word. So don't fear or resist these words. It is interesting that we pick and choose when we want to be systematic theologians. When we want to be theologians who are constructing God's word properly. We pick and choose when. When it comes to doctrines like the Trinity, of which there is not one specific word, Trinity, found in all the scriptures, we make no fuss concerning its theological construct. Yet, when it comes to, listen, words like covenant or one of our favorites, the Sabbath, we are adamant about our need to see the word or an explicit verse. Why? Why do we readily accept the Trinity even though we don't find the word Trinity in Scripture? It is because we understand that although it is not explicitly stated in Scripture, we know that the blessed Trinity is implicitly taught all throughout the Scriptures. Amen. The blessed doctrine of the three persons of the Trinity stands on scriptural basis. It is a scriptural construct and all Orthodox believers affirm this doctrine. Why? Because of its scriptural construct. So it is with the covenant of grace. Listen to this. It is a divine or what is a divine covenant? We talked about this. God imposes a relational agreement upon man for the purpose of displaying his goodness, mercy, love and a way to relate to man. Even if you said, well, I want to stick to a biblical word. What would you come up with if you said, is there a biblical word for covenant of grace? Yes. New covenant. The new covenant. But think about this. What is the covenant of grace? And we'll discuss this more in a moment, but it is the new covenant. What is the new covenant? It is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension on behalf of who? Incapable, unwilling, rebellious people who can do nothing to earn or work the work accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. What is that called? That's called grace. That's called grace. Who is the one who has initiated this grace or given this grace who has done this work? God. Is there a, a, a promise connected to it? Yes. What do we call promises in the Bible? Covenants. Hence, a covenant of grace. How did we construct that? Through what Scripture has said. Amen. So before we reject the theological, theological truths, theological constructs, do the work. Do the work of seeing how this is true throughout the Scriptures. And that we are not making things up or that these things are not coming out of the imaginations of men, but out of the word of Almighty God. Number three. The covenant of grace defined. The covenant of grace defined. Again, Genesis 315. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the midst of this tragedy. There is hope. What is the hope? The light of the blessed hope is the covenant that God promises to man. Friendship with the serpent will come to an end. The power of the serpent will be demolished. The seed will come and he will conquer. The blessed light comes in the midst of darkness that is attempting to engulf All of creation. And where has the light come from? From God. God shone through the darkness. Man could not muster up this light. Man has lost all ability to make right what had gone terribly wrong by his own actions. God has come down. God has pursued man. God has cursed the evil one. God has promised that his seed will come and deliver the final death blow to the dragon. What then is the covenant of grace? If you don't have a copy of our confession, you need to get one. Chapter 7, paragraph 2 of our confession. Listen closely to this. Man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord God to make a covenant of grace, wherein he offers freely or freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. Listen now. Requiring of them faith in him. God requires faith in him. That they may be saved. And listen. And promising to give unto those. All those that are un, that are ordained unto eternal life. His Holy Spirit. Listen. To make them willing and able to believe. Did you hear that? If simplified down to commitments, we may ask, what is God committing to do? God is committing to give eternal life to all those who have faith and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. His finished and accomplished work on behalf of sinners who have rebelled against God. Do you see why that is so gracious? It's a new covenant. It's a better covenant. It's better than the old covenant. But if that were not enough. And brothers, that is enough. But if that were not enough, God not only promises to give eternal life to all those who have faith, but he also promises to give the very thing that he requires. Faith. God not only promises that he will save those who place their faith in Christ, he also promises that he will be the one who gives faith so that we can be saved. Why? Because we are unwilling to. Unable to come to God on our own. We, by our very nature, resist God with all that we are. But God promises in the covenant of grace that he will not only save all those in trust in Christ, but also give faith. The faith that is required to trust in Christ, he gives that to those for whom he has ordained unto eternal life. As our confession says. Those who he has known before the foundation of the world. They are the the, the seed of the the children of the seed. They are his offspring. Now, vastly different from the covenant of works. Uh, On the other side of the world of the covenant of works, the covenant of works is based on a condition. What is the condition of the covenant of works? Obey and you live. Disobey. And you die. In the covenant of works, Adam's reward was dependent upon what? Adam's work. Adam's reward is dependent upon Adam's work. His obedience. He therefore earns his reward. He worked for it. That's the condition of the works, of the covenant of works. You obey You receive. But what is the covenant of grace? It's not working. There is no work that you can do. It's not working, brothers and sisters. It's resting. Not work. Rest. Resting in the finished, perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I can offer nothing to that work. You and I cannot aid or assist the Lord Jesus Christ in that work. It is His work alone. He stands as a representative, as a federal head, if you will. And for those whom He has foreordained, He works for them, so that they, we, might rest in Him. The conditions of works and faith are fundamentally different And there is no condition in faith because faith is not meritorious. You don't work for faith. You can't muster up enough faith. Like some of you and I who have been raised in that world. You cannot work up enough faith. You cannot read enough scripture. You cannot pray enough prayers to build up so-called faith and make yourself a faith giant. It's not possible for you. Faith is not a work. Faith is a gift. Faith is ordained by God. Faith is the ordained way that sinners enter into the covenant of grace. Romans 4, four. now to the one who works, his wages are counted not as a gift, but as his due. When you work and what you are paid, you earned that. No one gifts you what you worked for. Amen. I've said this before, but your boss does not come to you on payday and say, and say, I've been thinking about you. You've been working hard. You've been doing all of the things that we've asked of you. I've got a gift for you. This is not a gift. You worked for that. You earned that. The apostle Paul goes on and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. His faith is counted as righteousness. We did not earn nothing. What did we earn? We earned death. We earned sin. We failed in Adam to keep the covenant of works. And every man thereafter would fail to restore what Adam lost in the garden. Every good deed of man would not suffice. Every meritorious work would be as filthy rags before God. Every charitable act. You could feed the hungry. You can clothe the naked. And every single one of those meritorious acts would not be able to atone for your sins. The covenant of grace solves man's dilemma. The covenant of grace solves our problem. And it is our most dire problem. Yesterday we fed the hungry and the homeless. And the gospel was preached. And talking amongst some of them, they still believe that there is something that they can do. Some good that they can do to stand before God on their own. And it was preached by Brother Marcus. It was preached by Brother Ray. It was preached by Brother Louis. You cannot stand before God on your own. You cannot save yourself. The covenant of grace provides a new door for man. Not a new door for God. God is eternally willed to save man. But a new door for man. A door that man did not know ever existed. It is a door that God opens for man. The covenant of grace solves the problem of the failed covenant of works. And what must you do to enter into the covenant of grace? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And how will you do so? God will give you faith to believe. Upon the hearing of the gospel... He gives sight where there was none. He gives hearing where there was none. So that you may believe. Number four and finally. The gospel is a promise. Not a law. The gospel is a promise and not a law. So very important. Think about the covenant of works. God put Adam in the garden of Eden with a commission. God gave Adam certain laws that he must obey. In order to be blessed. And if he did not keep those laws. He would be cursed. Adam was in a covenant with God. Based upon what though? Law. Works. Obedience. There was a covenant. And what was the basis of the covenant? Law. Works. Obedience. Obedience. The beauty of Genesis 3.15 is that God gives Adam a new way that is wholly different to relate to him. A way that was previously unknown to Adam, but also a way that is now uh, different for Adam. A new covenant, but different than the former covenant. The former covenant uh, depended upon law, works, obedience, and now God makes a covenant with Adam. That is based upon promises from God. Promises. God is opening a new door of hope. A new way of standing right before God. The scriptures declare that this is a promise and not a law. And brothers and sisters, this is good news. This is the covenant of grace, not the covenant of works. Romans 11, 6, If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You got that? You have to get this point. Paul says, it's not one and the other. You got that? It's not works and grace. You don't mix the two. You don't miss grace and works. It's either one or the other, not two together. Amen. It's either grace or its works, but it's not both. Galatians 3.12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. The one who obeys the law gets the benefits of what? The law. Can we obey the law? No. You are born a rebel against God. We cannot obey the law. Genesis or Galatians 3 18. For if the inheritance comes by law, it is no longer on a basis of promise. The scripture gives us a contrast from the law and the gospel, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, whereby you can approach God on the basis of your obedience and expect the reward, or you can approach God on his promise. To freely give to those who trust not in themselves, but trust in Christ. How sad it is for someone to say, I believe that when I stand before God, I have done enough on my own to stand righteous before God. How do you know that you've done enough? How will you ever know that you've done enough? And that is the the false gospel of Rome. How will you ever know that you have done enough to be justified before God? You will never know. This is why there is purgatory, so that if you were wrong in your estimation, there is at least a place in their view, in the false view, where you can make up for your false estimations or for your lack of work. This is no good news. This is no gospel. This is bad news. How would you like to come to the end of your life thinking that you've made it only to find out you've still got more work to do? Or how would you like to live in this life never knowing if you've done enough? Never truly knowing that you've done enough. Adam would come to God on the basis of his work. But on what basis does Adam now come to God? Is it possible for Adam to come to God on the basis of obedience? No. Why? Because he's disobeyed. Therefore, he no longer has the right to approach God on the basis of the covenant of works because he's broken that covenant. He's disobeyed God. He is in a cursed state, a negative state. He and all of his offspring, you and I, were in a negative state. We could not, we would not approach God on our own. But God. But God, being gracious, eternally decreed that there would be another way open for man to be rescued from his judgment. It is a way of promise. It is the way of grace that can be received by what? By faith. For this reason, we should rejoice and praise God when we read this passage. Because it is good news. It comes to us in the form of a promise, not a law. God did not tell Adam, you've messed up. Start over and try again and this time do it right. You hear that? That is so profound. God does not take Adam like we take ourselves, even after salvation, and say, okay, start over. Try again and don't make any more mistakes this time. Only to do what? Sin again. For many of us, we have not learned the gospel of grace. Because what do we do when we fail? What do we say so often? I got to get back where I used to be. As if you have somehow started all over again. Is that grace? No, you're talking about works. I've sinned again. Now I must start all over again day one. What has God promised? That he will cast your sins as far as the east is from the west, never to remember them anymore. Are you God? Then why do you keep playing God in your life? Why do you keep acting as if you will stand judge over your life? God will stand judge over your life, not you. And God has declared what over you by grace? That he has cast your sins as far as the east is from the west Never to remember them again. Never to remember them again. It's not a matter of starting over every time you fail. That is not the door that God has opened for Adam and for humanity. Not only that, but God has promised to bring us through that door. You hear that? God not only promises to open a new door, but he also promises to take you through that new door. It's not only open. Imagine if God says, there's a door. Best of luck. Give it your best shot. We would all fall dead at the doorstep. None of us would be able. None of us would be willing. And praise God, that is not the gospel of grace. Praise God, that is not the covenant of grace. God is the one who works in the hearts of men to bring them not only to salvation, but through salvation. God gives Adam a promise of conquest over Satan. Adam did not guard the garden. Adam did not fill the world, fill the world with righteous offspring. Adam did not judge the serpent with the knowledge of good and evil, but God will. The seed will. The seed of the woman will. Adam did not, but the second Adam will. When we understand the covenant of works, which required obedience and threatened life or death to all those who fail, we can rejoice even more so in the covenant of grace, which requires faith, but also That God is the one who gives us that faith. How are you saved? You are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. You are saved by his work, his perfect work, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, and his glorious ascension. And let us be clear. Faith cannot save you. The Lord Jesus Christ saves you. Faith in and of itself is nothing. You have faith every time you go to a restaurant. That it is not filled with something. You have faith every time you stand behind or sit behind an automobile. That the car coming the other direction at 70 miles an hour will not pile into you. But there is a salvific faith. That rests upon. That is founded upon. The Lord Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. And he calls you to repent of your sins. To place your faith and your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what does God graciously do when he calls all those to repent? Just as the brothers did yesterday. When they made the call, I call you to repent of your sins. I call you to turn to Christ and trust in him alone. What does God do when the, the gospel call goes out? It reaches the ears of those who are his elect. He graciously causes you to hear what you were previously deaf to. He graciously causes you to believe what you previously denied. He graciously softens what was previously hardened to the gospel. God requires faith in order to be saved. And God gives you the faith to be saved. It is a monergistic work. It is God's work. God's work alone. We contribute nothing to this work. Because the one who works receives the glory. And to God alone be the glory. The covenant of grace provides what it demands. Believe and God gives us that belief. The covenant of work says do this and live. The covenant of grace says live and do this. The first place you work to gain life. The second place you are given life and then called to live in obedience. The law says you will. But grace says, I will. The law says, you will. But grace says, I will. God will. And then you will. John Bunyan, wonderful quote that I came across, says this. Run, John, run, the law commands. But neither gives us feet nor gives us hands. For better news the gospel brings, it bids us to fly And gives us wings. The law says do this and live. But does not give you the strength to fulfill the commands. But the gospel is the opposite. It gives you life and then gives you the strength to live and obey. This is the gospel promise and not the law. The covenant of grace is a promise of what God will do. And because the covenant of grace is guaranteed and secured by God himself. We can therefore invest, invest, and hear what I say, invest complete confidence and trust in Him. I like that word, invest confidence. We've invested in many things. And after paying, sometimes a great deal, we find out that our investment did not meet what we gave. That what we paid into it is not giving back to us what we hoped for. But we can invest all of our confidence, all of our trust in God, who cannot be obstructed, who cannot be changed, who cannot be persuaded, who is impassable. He cannot fail. What is more trustworthy than the promises of God? And what more would you invest in than the promises of God? Oh, brothers and sisters, we invest our minds and our, our, our bodies into so many things that give us so little back. But to invest all of our mind, all of our heart, all of our strength, all that we are into God will never reap an empty reward. You will never uh, be disappointed with what you receive back from God. He has promised to give all those who trust in him every spiritual blessing, blessing in the heavenlies. They are yours by Christ Jesus. And they are better than earthly blessings. They are eternal blessings. They are blessings that you will take with you. The clothes on your back, the car that you drive, the house that you live in will stay. Don't invest more into those things than in the promises of God that will last eternal, eternally, eternally. This good gospel news. Is what we find in the book of Genesis. It's what God promises to his, his children. And, and again, Scripture takes this, unpacks this, and then builds upon this, as our confession says, by further steps. By further steps. God told Abraham that the world would be blessed through an offspring. The Apostle Paul let, later tells us that, that that offspring, that seed, was the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is that offspring. God told David that his throne would be established forever. And God develops his promise and shows that, that a new Adam, a second Adam, a last Adam, a son of God, a true son of David, that a new image of God will take creation to consummation and will exercise true dominion over creation with an eternal throne to God be the glory. Think about Jeremiah. Let's go to Jeremiah 31 as we close. And listen to these words as if you were Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. This Jeremiah 31 is Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Here is that new covenant promise. Verse 31 and 34 through 34. Behold, And your Bible may say above it, the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write... It on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, "Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is the covenant of grace. This is the new covenant. The gospel is not about what you will do. The gospel is about what God will do. God will suffer for us. He will extinguish the flames of judgment that awaited us. And he will bring many sons to glory. At no point after believing in God will God say to you, I brought you this far. Now the rest is up to you. May it never be. In justice, we would expect Adam to be struck down. He deserved to be struck down. But God showed mercy. God shows that he is a helper to the helpless. Praise God for his grace and his mercy. Just as Adam and the woman could hear these curses and yet have hope because of what God has promised in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you too. You can hear this good gospel news and have hope in Christ who has covered the sins of those who trust in him. He has promised to take your sins that have been covered at the cross, to take them, to place them upon His shoulders, His shoulders, and to remember your sins no more. Why? Because they have been paid for. They've been satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. We rest in Christ by receiving His righteousness. We do not overcome sin by by just being good people, by being better people, If you do that, you are under the law and expect to receive that which you have have, uh, lived up to in accordance to the law. What will you do? Will you work to satisfy the righteous requirements of the law on your own? Or will you come to Christ who has perfectly, flawlessly satisfied the righteous requirements of God? And who freely bids you to come. Come to him. Come to Christ. He is the mighty skull crusher. He is the mighty savior. Of those who trust in him. Be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Be made right with God for eternity. By faith. In Christ. Through grace that God offers in this new covenant the covenant of grace. Let us stand.